Welcome to Privacy Abbreviated, brought to you by BBB National Programs. As our regular listeners know, our goal here is to help business leaders prepare and operationalize for what's next in the privacy space. I am Donna Frazier, Senior Vice President of Privacy Initiatives at BBB National Programs. And once again, I am joined by my co-host, Jason Cronk, Chair and Founder of the Institute of Operational Privacy Design. Hello, Jason. How are you? And where are you? Hey, Donna. I, I am in Florida, as I will probably be for most of the rest of the year. I do have some exciting news. Uh, it looks like I will be teaching a class this fall at the Stevens Institute of Technology on privacy. Very cool. Congratulations. So to their computer science students, I think they're going to give me the title of adjunct professor, but I'm not exactly sure on that so far. Once you introduce our guest, then I guess I'll, I, I will be sitting here with two professors. Yes. <laughs> so lucky me. <laughs> so hopefully our listeners tuned into our last podcast where we discussed with our guests the idea of hard law versus soft law, self-regulation and, and industry standards. Yeah. So today we'd like to introduce and welcome our guest, Professor Matthew Tokeson, professor at the College of Law at the University of Utah. Professor Tokeson's research focuses on Fourth Amendment and its application to new technologies and social contexts. He has also written about broader theoretical issues in privacy, judicial decision-making, and criminal punishment, and he is currently co-leading an interdisciplinary group studying the psychological effects of incarceration. His article, Knowledge and Fourth Amendment Privacy, was featured during oral arguments in the Carpenter versus United States decision, which held that the government violates the Fourth Amendment when it accesses historical records of mobile phones containing location information without a search warrant. Today, we brought Professor Tokeson to discuss government purchasing of private data. He has an upcoming paper on the topic in the Wake Forest Law Review. So welcome, Matt. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah. So as Jason mentioned in the intro, we want to talk today really about the government purchasing of private data. So can you please give us some background and what do you even mean by government purchase of private data and why is this such a concern? Sure. So the data that uh, I'm talking about is typically data collected on consumers or users of cell phones as they use apps throughout their day. And it's traditionally location data, but it can be all sorts of things, web surfing data, increasingly all sorts of data generated by a cell phone and internet use on the phone. And so this data is collected by various app companies. It's often sold to data brokers and other third parties who can aggregate it in various useful ways. And increasingly, in addition to selling that data to marketers or companies involved in doing targeted web ads and things like that, these companies are selling it to government entities, and especially there are specialized data brokers who might be selling it to the government for law enforcement purposes. The government seems to have found this as a way to circumvent some restrictions on information gathering activities that have come up recently in the Carpenter uh, case where the the Supreme Court held that they couldn't track people's locations uh, via their cell phone. This is sort of a way around that. And so the government, various government agencies you know, Department of Homeland Security, the DOJ, uh, all sorts of agencies have purchased location data and other data on consumers for law enforcement purposes. And that raises a, a whole host of interesting legal questions. 
So Dan Solov and, and Paul Schwartz, who are both law professors and work in privacy, they published a few years back a blueprint for data privacy law in the American Law Institute. And I asked Professor Solov whether the law covered the sale of data to, to governments, which is this has been a concern of mine for a while. He confirmed it did not. And while things like GDPR over in Europe do cover the private sector, why do you think American law and policymakers are kind of reticent to address this issue from a legal perspective or a law perspective? I think generally the privacy law here in America has been a lot less robust, a lot less comprehensive than European privacy law under the GDPR. GDPR is not perfect. It's often very vague, and they sort of flesh it out as they go to, to some extent. But uh, in the U.S., privacy law has been mostly sector by sector or addressing specific uses and not sort of broader consumer uh, protection. So I think there's just a general reluctance in this country to get involved with privacy regulation for, for various reasons. One might be this is all informational and the, the harms can be subtle. And so when Congress is, is listening to the industry lobbyists, there, there may not be a strong voice on the other side pointing to specific, like, horrific harms. There was a proposed, there, there have been, I think, a few proposed laws to address government purchases of, of private data, but none has passed. Do you think that, kind of have a two-part question. So do you think first that some of the way in which we in the United States deal with privacy is different than the way they deal with it in Europe, embedded in the culture of how we view privacy and privacy rights? Yeah, that's interesting. I think so. I think they theorize it uh, differently, almost in, the, in a way similar to how they theorize uh, intellectual property a little differently over there. And they tend to protect these rights in more concrete ways and to almost sort of conceive of them in more concrete ways. Here, I think privacy is a, is a value that Americans recognize and that pops up in law and scholarship and, and places like that. But I don't think we have a long history of protecting it in regulation. In part, that's our political system differs from Europe, our constitutional system. So a lot of times the, the privacy regulation here in the United States is done via tort law or done via the FTC and, and its enforcement. And that's just sort of you know one of the quirks of our, our different systems. So the, the second part of my question was, with regards to this kind of backdoor that we see government taking on, on data and purchasing data, do you think you need to be in a post 9-11 world? You know, does this bleed into the, the issue and concerns that Europeans may have, Max Rems in particular, about surveillance and the way that the Americans, that Americans use data and disseminate data or don't protect data? In some sense, I think in the sense that um, some of the purchasers of this data, national security organizations, the NSA, a big one is the Department of Defense's intelligence arm is a big purchaser of location data and I believe other forms of data as well. And so that that is sort of the, to some extent, a post 9-11 security and intelligence apparatus that is buying this data. And now the interesting thing is if for, when they're buying it for national security purposes, the Fourth Amendment might, may have less to say about that, right? That might be okay under the Fourth Amendment in, in some ways. If they're really isolating it for those purposes, that's a whole different kettle of fish. But I think that's right, that the, the big sort of security apparatus that came up around 9-11 is part of, part of the market for these uh, blocks of data. 
So you mentioned that potentially the restrictions on the collection or sale of data more broadly might play into the the lessened availability for government purchase. And I know the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is investigating data brokers. The FTC and Kachava are locked in a heated battle over the sale of data. I mean, do you think that's the, the best avenue given the reticence of regulators to dip in and speak specifically to sale of government data? Or do you think a judicially restrictive approach, I mean, is the Supreme Court going to all of a sudden rule that you can't bypass the Fourth Amendment by buying it? Yeah, it's interesting because normally I would say that the judicial route is the easiest because the cases will come up and judges will, will weigh in. The Supreme Court is relatively pro-privacy, pro-Fourth Amendment even today. But I think it's a, it's, it's a little difficult in the government purchases area because there companies um, selling this data to the government and to, to some extent the government agencies themselves have been very careful to keep this stuff out of the courts. And the companies certainly are, are leading the charge on that. And some companies will require you to sign a contract that says you will not disclose this information publicly. You'll just use it to you know pull someone over and surprise, surprise, they have a bunch of drugs in their car. You don't say how you know that they were going to have drugs in their car or whatever it is they have in their car. You just sort of say they had a broken taillight and you happen to find the drugs. So this almost uniquely is really hard to challenge in court. So the FTC regulatory agencies like that will likely play a big role, uh, especially in the absence of of legislation. But I don't know if the courts are really going to play that that big of a role. For a number of years, this has been what I saw as, as kind of one of those underdeveloped and under-concerned areas from the privacy community for a number of reasons. But I I could say, so I did some consulting work for a a data broker. And one of the things I was proposing in kind of this privacy program management was that they develop a policy around sales to government. I was not saying that they should restrict it, not saying that they should not do it, but this was kind of right around the time of Khashoggi and the Saudi Arabian government and the concern that this data broker might sell location data of like dissidents to foreign government. And they flatly said, no, we're not going to develop a policy. Not not a policy that says it's okay or maybe there are certain circumstances. They just refused to even consider the notion of a policy because it was they were making too much money on it. And it was quite unfortunate. So sorry, I was asking you, they found it restrictive to their bottom line, essentially. Yeah, I- I- exactly. You know, and it's not just, it's certainly in that respect, but even in other respects, from my concern, I've been questioning like whether the FTC could, if a privacy notice or policy said, we only comply with lawful requests for data or something, does that mean a subpoena or a warrant? Or does that mean if law enforcement agent says, hey, will you please give us this data and a company turns it over or decides to sell it? Sorry, that, that's kind of a sidetrack. So one of the things that I found interesting, at least anecdotally in your discussion, is There are some companies that are purposely set up to sell data to government and some that just do it as a side business. Is there any distinction there or or anything you can point out in that respect? Yeah, often the company that directly sells to the government and in some cases provides additional services related to law enforcement, identifying otherwise anonymous people, things like that. A lot of times those seem to be sort of uh, subsidiaries of larger data broker companies. So you might have a consumer facing or or rather a marketing facing data broker company, 
and then a, a subsidiary of that that is directly for the government. Maybe the employees have the necessary security clearances or, or whatever it is to, to talk to the NSA or just the, the marketing and, and the interface might be different. But um, a lot of times these are directly related to broader, more marketing-based companies. Is location data the, the only concern or is there other types of data that individuals should be concerned about that companies might be selling about them? I mean, demographic data, is that of concern or is that not an issue? It, it could be of a concern. Demographic data, even things like subscriber information, web addresses in, in that sense, or like email addresses, typically aren't the biggest concern in the privacy community and certainly not in Fourth Amendment law, which every court to hear it has said, yeah, you can find out like one person's, one suspect's email address, and that's not really problematic. The data that I found being sold that concerns me the most is probably web traffic data. Now, and this can be all kinds of things, but typically I think it's lists of IP addresses that someone visits. Now that's not quite as revealing as say like the website URLs that someone visits, but it can be pretty revealing. You can, you may be able to tell from that information, again, depending on how detailed it is, the type of web surfing that a person is doing, who they're communicating with, what kind of websites they're reading. I don't know if you've ever gone back and looked at your browser history uh, in any given browser, but it's a real uh, personality fingerprint if you look at it. And it's, at least if you're on the internet as much as I am, it really sort of can trace the, the contours of your day and your interests and things like that. It can be very revealing. So that's, that's a concern to me if, if government agencies are purchasing that kind of data in bulk. Yeah. So I'm wondering, we're, we're talking about like web traffic and like cell phone data, but I remember an early, I don't know if it was necessarily a case, but an early issue where law enforcement was going to local retailers and asking credit card information of who was buying uh, lots of small baggies because of the potential inference that they were using them to then resell drugs. So I'm wondering, I mean, is this also concern in the retail environment or is that more closer they're going to get a warrant or subpoena for that information. I mean, because retailers aren't in the business of selling their sales data, I guess. Well, interestingly, because of a 1973 Supreme Court decision, that data isn't protected by the Fourth Amendment in any sense. So you could you could purchase it, and people might be, but they could also just subpoena it if it's relevant to a criminal investigation or just ask for it, you know, send a polite letter. And so that hasn't come up as much in my research just because it's, it's freely available sort of by any means. So most of our listeners tend to be at small to medium-sized companies. And how does this conversation that we're having impact them? What should they be thinking about with regards to law enforcement? They get a knock on the door. <laughs> they get a request for a warrant or subpoena, or they don't. What should they really be thinking about? What should they be doing? Yeah. I, one potential concern for from the business side might be if you're engaged in selling a lot of data to the government or really interacting with law enforcement in, in any sort of cooperative or ongoing way, especially. The one case on, on government purchases of private data that has really come out that, it, that I was able to find involves a company that does this and does, works very closely with the government. That company was, was found to be a state actor. In other words, to be sort of a branch of the government for the purposes of whatever investigations they're working on. And if you're a state actor working with the government in ways that I would argue are violating the Fourth Amendment, that could expose you to 
civil rights liability, which can, you have to pay fees and costs. It's, if you're a small business, typically, and you get a warrant request, you should, then typically you're going to give them what they ask for. You know, that's a, that's as lawful as it gets. Aside from that, if you get a request that's like a court order, if you get a request, especially that's just a polite email or a phone call or something, you want to be careful to be compliant with the Stored Communications Act, with the Electronic Communications Privacy Act. They have various provisions for some disclosures to the government. Uh, the government has to meet a certain threshold, at least acquire a certain court order, things like that. So from the business side, you want to make sure that you're in compliance with those statutes um, before you just just send over the information. Again, it'd be mostly the police officer or law enforcement official who'd be violating the law, but you wouldn't want to get caught up in any litigation over violating those statutes. Are government agencies mostly, are they purchasing data about individuals or are they pay, like, give me all your location data that you have? I mean, are they purchasing data sets about everybody and then they're going and searching for individuals or are they targeting individuals and asking companies to provide everything they have on specific individuals for sale? Uh, typically, I think it's more the latter where you buy a license to use a software that can access vast databases of location data or other data on individuals. And then once you have that license, depending on the scope of the license, you might be able to, if you're the FBI or something, you might just be able to type anyone's uh, information in there and sort of search them, isolate down to the individual at that stage. There are sort of cheaper licenses and cheaper programs that you can acquire that some local police departments have bought, a software called Fog Reveal, the one that I have in mind, where typically the licenses are a little more restrictive and you can search how not a ton of people per per year or whatever it is, or it's going to cost you more to search more. But it's it's typically that scenario where you buy access to a vast database of locations and then you sort of narrow it down with your requests. And again, the, the scope of the license will determine exactly how that works. Do you think that there is, we've been talking about this, and we talked about this during our last podcast about soft law versus hard law, self-regulation, industry standards. Is there room for, for that in this space? Is there room for self-regulation? Is there room for standards? Or are we waiting for case law? I think there can be. The thing that comes to mind in terms of soft law in the privacy space are what's called fair information practices, which were proposed in the 70s and continue on today. They, in, again, in Europe, they are in part enshrined in law, uh, binding law, but in the United States have remained uh, voluntary and the FTC will promote them and things like that, but they, they have not yet enforced them in the manner of a statute or anything like that. And so companies to varying degrees uh, might comply with fair information practices. They typically do uh, in areas involving, say, notice, consent, things like that for um, initial data collection. Uh, not every company, obviously, but a lot of companies will do that much. There are other fair information practices that are a little more restrictive or burdensome that companies often don't adopt, at least in the United States. But those have had some measure of impact and could have even more impact in the future if companies are trying to avoid congressional scrutiny or liability. At least in the abstract, I think soft law, voluntary standards, things like that have had some effect in the past and may have some effect going forward. So uh, is there anything consumers can do to protect themselves uh, in this situation other than stop carrying a phone? <laughs> <laughs> there is. From the consumer end, one thing that, that may help is 
to opt out of targeted advertising and collection via your browser, via Google, you can opt out of location tracking or just behavioral tracking uh, in general. Big thing you can do in terms of location history, if, if you're amenable to it, is to turn off location permission or make sure that your phone is only only disclosing location permission in certain contexts. And, and in fact, to their credit, Apple in particular, and, and to a lesser extent, Android, have been a little more careful in disclosing location information to every app that comes along. That disclosure via app uh, continues to be an issue today, and, and you know millions of people are, are doing it in via Google Maps or Apple Maps or other lesser apps, who, which are maybe more prone to uh, sell your data to data brokers. But progress has been made on that end, uh, mostly on the sort of technological end, in terms of restricting location disclosure. So consumers can use opt-outs. They can opt out of targeted advertising. They can opt out of location data tracking. Uh, you can opt out of Google's location uh, history feature, although there's downsides. Um, so I, pref- I prefer the legal solutions, but they, there are consumer-based uh, solutions. Let me ask you this. Do you have an answer to kind of the pat stereotypical question well, if it's for law enforcement purposes, you know, I don't have anything to hide. I'm not a criminal. So do I care that they're getting my location data when they're, they're picking criminals off the street? Yeah, I think location data is a good, a good way to sort of grapple with that question. I'd like to think that I don't have anything to hide in terms of criminal liability, but that doesn't mean that I want the government to know everywhere I go and everything I do as I go about my day. You know, if I go to a protest or something like that, that may be information that I don't want leaking out to the government. And, or more broadly, I don't necessarily want everything I do can reveal sort of everything about me and who I am, everything about my life. In addition, there can be government abuses with this much information, right? The knowledge is power. The knowledge of the encyclopedic knowledge of everything a person is doing gives you a lot of power, especially if, that, if you have that knowledge about everyone in your country. And, you know, there's, I often emphasize in my works, the history of government abuse of data collection. Typically, when I think about that, I think about those sort of wiretapping era, the pre-late uh, 1960s in the J. Edgar Hoover era at the FBI, when the government was wiretapping all sorts of people, including politicians, Supreme Court justices, certainly activists, uh, you know, civil rights organizations. When the government has that much power over people, they they can use it. And if you get someone in there like a Jager Hoover or name whatever politician you don't like on, on either side, it can be really concerning to give them that much power over individuals, that much knowledge of the intimacies of an individual's life. Wasn't that in the oral arguments of Carpenter or, or maybe it was a previous case where one of the justices asked the government, so you can track me without a warrant? <laughs> yes. I, I, yeah, it's funny you say, say that. So I was a clerk at the Supreme Court that year. This was 2012. Uh, mm. in the, and this was the Jones case. Jones, that's it. Yeah, where it involved putting a GPS device on the underside of a car and tracking someone's location that way. And so I believe it was Chief Justice Roberts asked Michael Dreben, the government's attorney, who's an excellent attorney, and asked him, so are you saying that you could track us using a GPS device? And Dreben thinks about it for a second and says, yes, but 
and you can see, I could see all <laughs> nine justices sort of sit back in their chairs with concerned looks on their faces. And, uh, and at right. that point, the joke among the Supreme Court said is sort of that was the point when the case was lost. Now, I don't know if that's true. Right. I mean, it was a unanimous case, but it wasn't, it's, it's concerning. I think if from the, the lowliest of us up to the Supreme Court justices, we don't want the government to know everything there is to know about us. So this season, we have been asking our guests um, a set of interesting and, and fun questions, which give us a little bit of insight into you. So, and some of our listeners will recognize that some of these questions kind of are reminiscent of Inside the Actor Studio and James Lipton. So I tip my hat to them. We'll start with the first question, which is, what is your favorite word? Wow, that's, I find this question oddly difficult for some reason. What is a favorite word? I'll say mellifluous because it's fun to say. And it sounds nice to my ear. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. And sorry if we, we picked to the end to stump you with the hard questions. So, and then what's your least favorite word? I'm not sure. I'm not one of those people who dislikes the word moist, but so I, so I won't pick that. I guess just because it's reminiscent of the material, but I really don't like the material styrofoam nor the word styrofoam. Again, unpleasant to me. That's a good one. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? You know, I, I thought about being a journalist before I went to law school, and that might be fun, I think. I wasn't great at going up to people on the street and asking them questions, but I, I'd like to think I'm, I'm older and more confident now. Maybe I could uh, pull it off. And then, Donna, why am I getting all the negative ones? So, Matt, what, what <laughs> profession would you not like to do? A little bit related to that, I one thing I did uh, tried my hand at just very briefly and was terrible at was sales. You know, as a lawyer, I I like to think I can be persuasive and things like that, but actually selling a product to someone, I was no good at. I, I that's very different. Yeah, they would <laughs> they would sort of say, "Well, I'm not so sure," and I would almost think, "Well, you're right. Yeah, I should, I'm going to stop bothering you now." So I was no good at sales. <laughs> so last question. If any problem in the privacy landscape could be solved for tomorrow, what would you want it to be? Hmm. I, I guess I would do it in the Fourth Amendment context where I, where I write the most. And what I would really like the Supreme Court to do, if, if, they, if they wanted to listen to me, would be to set out a clear-cut test sort of along the lines of their Carpenter decision. But they should actually say hey, going forward, this is the test. It's got three factors or four factors or something. And I think they could do it. I think they could do it tomorrow if they really wanted to. That would make me a, a happy professor. Very good. Excellent. Well, Professor Toxin, it was wonderful to have you. It was a wonderfully interesting talk. Again, something that's been on my mind for a long time and of, of interest to me. So we appreciate having you here today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. This is really interesting. I learned a lot. I appreciate everyone for listening to our podcast today. As always, if you missed any of our previous episodes, you can check them out at accountabilitystudios.org, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. And please be sure to leave us a review and let us know what you'd like to hear next on Privacy Abbreviated. Thank you so much. Thank you.